0: Have you ever, as a parent, or had a parent, who made a promise that they just couldn't keep? Sometimes intentions don't align with ability. You really meant to, you really wanted to keep that promise. It was in your best intention, but you found that you just didn't have the ability for whatever reason. It just didn't work out according to plan. Sometimes it's because plans are interrupted by problems, an unexpected workload, an unplanned repair to a car that impedes a trip or a pay cut or a layoff stops a family vacation. And you wanted to, your plans were there, but you were interrupted by problems and therefore you couldn't keep the promise that you made. Or sometimes, for some of us parents, it, it isn't so much intention and ability or plans and problems, but really a hope turns out to actually be a hoax. By that I mean this. You know, it happens that you know, you break a few promises, you feel a little bit guilty, and so in order to make up for it, you really make a whopper. You tell your kids you're going to do something outstanding that's so big that if you do it, it will actually make up for all the broken promises that you've had in the past. But you know at the same time you're making that promise that it's a long shot. A vacation, a trip to Disney World, you know, a special event. And sure enough, the time comes, things don't work out, and it's another parental promise that just seems to be broken. And so that happens to us as parents. Sometimes we make promises And our inability to predict and control outcomes results in our occasional failure to keep them. But does that ever happen to God? Does he ever make a promise to us that's so big, so involved, so expensive, so hard to predict and control the outcome, that for some reason he just has to look at us and say, sorry, I really meant to, but it just didn't go according to plan. Something interrupted, and so I can't keep that promise that I made. There is a verse that is also a promise in the New Testament book of Romans that encapsulates the entire concept of what the book of Ruth teaches and illustrates for you and I. It's one of the most incredible promises in all of the Bible. It's found in the 8th chapter of Romans, the 28th verse. And it says this, For we know that God works all things together for good to those that love God who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's an incredible promise. I mean, how is it that God can simultaneously work in every circumstance, in every life, and control every outcome and work it all to the good? I mean, surely he must have meant that we can work some things together for the good. Or we can work the good things in your life together for the good. Or we can work your obedience together for the good. Or repentance we can work together for good. But for God to say that he can work all things together for good, to me that just sounds like a promise that that a parent would make in desperation. Or would speak in error. I, I, you know, I, I didn't realize the extent of what I was saying. How is it that God could keep a promise like that? Well-intentioned, perhaps, but quite impossible. Well, the book of Ruth gives to us a perfect example of just how that promise can play out in the lives of God's people. Now, by way of review, in our last study two weeks ago now, in chapter 1, we met a family fathered by a man named Elimelech. And he and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons left the town of Bethlehem in the land of Israel and they made their way across the Jordan River into the enemy's territory, the land of Moab. The economy was doing better over there. There was opportunity for him to feed his family. And so he left the place that God planted him and he went into a place where he thought that he could do better for himself. Well, he gets established over there and no sooner, but he finds himself perishing. He died. And not long after that, the two sons take wives. One's name is Ruth, the main character in our story. The other's name is Orpah. But soon after that, both of those two sons of Elimelech, Malon and Chilion, they both die as well. And they leave Naomi a a widow and without children. Both of her sons and her husband are gone, and it's just her and her two daughters-in-law. And so Naomi takes it upon herself to say, that's it. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I've had enough of this time in Moab and I need to go home. And so she tells her two daughters, go back to your parents' house. I'm going back to mine. Ruth decides, no, I'm staying with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I go. And where you die, that's where I will die. Orpah says, see ya. You know, and she goes back to Moab. But Ruth And Naomi, they head back to Bethlehem. And upon their return, when they come back to Bethlehem at the end of the chapter, they find that there's a revival going on there. God has poured out his spirit. He's poured out his favor again upon the land. They come at the time of barley harvest, and they come to great rejoicing. But Naomi is bitter. In fact, she even tells the people there, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, She says, call me bitter, because God has dealt very bitterly with me. So here's this Naomi now, and she finds herself sitting upon a pile of broken pieces of life. And she's asking herself the question that we all ask ourselves from time to time, is why do the righteous suffer? It's not my fault. I was being obedient to my husband, just as Sarah was obedient to Abraham when he went to Egypt outside of the will of God. So why is it that now, in obedience, I'm repaid with bitterness? That's the question Naomi's asking. Why has my whole life just been flushed down the toilet, so to speak, and I'm standing, left standing on a heap of broken pieces with no hope for a future? And certainly, she would say, if she could testify to us tonight, at least in that season of her life, certainly, Romans 8.28 isn't true for me. Though it may be true for others, though God may come through as often as he can, he certainly can never take the circumstances that I find myself in and turn them around for the good. Let me give you a few facts as we lay our own lives across the lens of that backdrop for a second. A few facts. Fact number one, if you're taking notes, is that God has a plan for every person. Now I know that sounds cliche, it sounds like I took that off the back of a t-shirt or a bumper sticker that I saw perhaps on my way here tonight, but the fact of the matter is that it's true according to the Bible. God has a plan for every person that he calls, but here's the catch. He doesn't force you to accept it, it's there for the taking, and if you deny it, it's lost. I often think of the men and women that God uses throughout the pages of Scripture, He puts a calling upon their life. He explains to them a plan that he has for them and then he gives them the option to take it or leave it. If they leave it, he doesn't call their brother or their cousin or their friend or someone else in their village. That plan goes away. That plan is specific to the person he's calling into that plan. And that's true for every single one of us. God has a place and a plan for you and it's a plan that only you can fulfill. No one else can do it. And should you deny it, God will not raise someone else up. It is yours for the taking or for the leaving. Fact number 2 is this: is that the plan that God has is good, and that and that is a promise that his plan is actually good. You might say, "Yeah, I recognize he has a plan, but maybe that plan isn't what I would necessarily want to do with my life." It's Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. It's a famous verse that all of us have heard, quoted, and probably read countless times. God says this. He says, For I know the thoughts and the plans that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I like the King James. I read it, uh, quoted it in New King James, but I like the King James. I think, I don't know what you have up there. But anyway, King James says this. It says, To bring you to an expected end. And I like that, because what it means is that God has a specific plan for you, and his promise is that that plan is good. It's better than anything that you would ever choose for yourself. But here's number three, and this is really where the catch is. Fact three, and that's this, is that the the performance of that promise requires patience. The performance of that promise requires patience. Or to say it in other ways, that there's always a passage of time that exists between the beginning of something and the blessing that comes at the end of it. Now, That's the frustrating thing for you and I, isn't it? I think of Abraham. God said, leave this place, Ur of the Chaldees, and go to a place that I will give you for an inheritance. It took 25 years from the time that Abraham left Ur to the time that there was the first ray of light to the fulfilling of that promise, when he would have a son, Isaac. 25 years, passed. I think of Peter. Jesus looked at him for the first time, and he said, You are Simon, shifting sand. You're unstable as water. But you shall be Peter, Petras, stone, stable. I'm going to do a work in you, Peter. I'm going to change you from what you are, and I'm going to make you into something strong. But there would be a gap of time that would persist. Many, many years would pass between the promise, the beginning, and the blessing. Paul went from persecutor to preacher, but there were seasons of suffering and silence along the way. And the same thing holds true for you. God has a plan for you. But that plan isn't going to make sense until you get there, and there is time that passes between. Now, many of us find ourselves somewhere in that waiting period, somewhere in that endless chasm we call the time gap between the promise of a plan and the sense of what that plan is, the fulfillment of that plan. And many have been lost in the frustration of that plan, giving up and checking out and starting off saying, God, I want what you've got for me. But then backing away because it's taking too long and it doesn't make sense, and I cannot see how. I went out full, said Naomi. I returned again empty. I used to be pleasant, but now I'm bitter because I can't understand the circumstances of my own life. So, the question that we all have as we go through these things and feel these frustrations is what do we do with the weight? How do we conduct ourselves? How do we live while we're waiting for God to make sense of the calling and the promise that He has for each one of us? And it's that that we see tonight in Ruth chapter 2 as we see this valiant man, Boaz, introduced to us and this virtuous woman, Ruth. And we see a perfect example of what to do while you're waiting. For God's plan to come through. So what we're going to do. Is we're going to go through this text. 23 verses. And then we're going to look at five things. Five answers to that question. What do we do with the wait? W-A-I-T. While we're waiting on the Lord. To fulfill his plan. How do we conduct ourselves? So we begin in verse 1. We read. It says that there was a relative now. Of Naomi's husband. A man of great wealth. Of the family of Elimelech. And his name was Boaz. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain, after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Is he hiring? I want to work for him. (laughs) Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Pause for one second. In verse 1, we meet a new character in the story, this man whose name is Boaz. His name means to strengthen. We're told that he is a mighty man of wealth. In the Hebrew, that phrase employed, it means that he is a greatly productive person, that he is mighty, he's strong, a man of strength, also a man of wealth, and that wealth is due to his industry and his productivity. He's extremely diligent in business. We're told that he's of the family of Elimelech, our character who passed away in chapter one of the narrative, Naomi's Uh, husband who had died he's a part of that family here it seems a small detail but it's going to become a major part of the narrative later on we also observe that he's a very godly man he's a great witness to his workers it seems as though he cares more for them than he does the productivity of what they're they're producing what they're providing He prays a blessing over them as he meets them in the field. And they, in return, reciprocate that blessing and that prayer back to him. The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you. And he keeps the work atmosphere a spiritual place uh, uh, along the way. We also see that he's aware of the people that are around him. He, He inquires about Ruth, this stranger, this Moabite, who's there gleaning in the field. But he wants to know who she is, what's her story. We're going to find that he's proper and holy in his interaction with people, especially with women, and we see that he's patient. He's waiting on and trusting in God for the affairs of his life. Now, I pointed out to you uh, earlier in our last study, I believe, that Boaz is also an interesting guy for this reason. He is the son of Rahab the harlot from Joshua chapter 2. Remember Rahab, the walls of Jericho, her house was on the wall. And when the spies came in, they hid in her house and she sent away the pursuers and hid them upon the roof and made a covenant with the spies. And they said, drop the scarlet thread from the window. And when we come in, God's going to spare you as long as you stay in the house. And she was spared and she was assimilated into the camp of Israel. She became a proselyte or a Christian in today's vernacular. She gave her life to the Lord. She married a Jew whose name was Salmon and their son or one of their sons was this man whose name was Boaz, which I find incredibly interesting uh, considering what he's going to do in the interest that he takes in Ruth. And I wonder what his background had to do with that. We also uh, learn of Boaz this, and this is important. You might want to write this down is that Boaz becomes for us a type of Christ. Now, if that word or that concept is new to you in the Bible, here's what that simply means. Jesus said this. He said that all scripture ultimately points to me. Paul said it like this. He said that all the things that happened in the Old Testament were examples pointing to what would take place in the new. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures, but you miss the fact that they all point directly to me. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see that these characters that actually lived reflect aspects, characteristics, similarities to Jesus. And the purpose of that would be so that when Jesus would come, they would recognize that God had laid the groundwork for him to come. And so Boaz is a type, a picture of Christ. A few things. First of all, I love what it says um, uh, right there in verse uh, 4 it says now behold boaz came from bethlehem that there's a clue right there jesus came from bethlehem we see that he's also a man of might and wealth we see that he's a man of perfect character and we see that he's able and willing to redeem now hold on to that but understand it i just want to throw it out to you that boaz is a picture a representation of christ now we also see here ruth again We met her in the last chapter. She's devoted. She's transformed. God is working within her life. But we see here something else about this woman, Ruth. We see that she's industrious. She's not one to just sit around. She's come back with Naomi. There they are in the land and they've got nothing. They've got no money. They've got no land. It's been sold, mortgaged (laughs) away. And here they are in a place of poverty And she decides that I'm not just going to sit here on my hands, but I've got to go do something. So she asks permission of Naomi, can I go out and glean? Now, gleaning was Israeli welfare. In Leviticus chapter 19, and I'll read you just two verses, 9 and 10 from Leviticus 19, the law stated that when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. That is the the things that fall out, the little things. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger, for I am the Lord your God. Again, he reiterates it in Deuteronomy 24, saying that when you harvest your field, you're allowed one pass. You can't go back a second time. If you accidentally leave a sheaf on the ground... You forgot it. You're not allowed to go back for it. That was the way that God chose to provide for the less fortunate, the widows, the fatherless, and the foreigners. And that's what Ruth was. She was all three. She was a widow. She was the fatherless, so to speak, and she was uh, a foreigner. And so this was welfare for them. It's a wise system, isn't it? Because they don't just sit home and collect, but rather they have to go out and actually gather something. It's the wisdom of God. He makes a way for them. He has compassion, but he does it in a way where they have to do something. And in the process of doing something, they're being active. They're learning something about the field that they're in and how the agricultural system works. They're getting a good example from other people that are there working. It promotes ambition within them to want to go do something. It's just plain out wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. And we see that Ruth, hard on her times, is willing, even though she'll bear reproach, it's a risk to her and to her reputation, but she's going to go out and she is going to glean. Now, what else do we see in this woman Ruth? We see that she is being drawn to God very clearly. Her marriage to Malon, her ability to see and feel the emptiness that existed in Moab, which then provoked her to want to return with Naomi, her willingness to live among Jews, which were the most hated of all people, especially by Moabites. And, uh, and and now we see here also in verse 3, it says that she just happened to come into the field of Boaz, who's in the family of Elimelech, who will, I'm spoiling the story here. If you don't want the spoiler, close your ears. Going to become her husband, her redeemer, so to speak. Oh, I did. I'm sorry. I ruined it for you, you know. But here's what you need to know is that just as Boaz is a type of Christ, a picture, an illustration that points us to Jesus, so Ruth is also a picture. She's a type of the believer, the bride. That's you and I, the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said that it's a great mystery, but when I speak of a man and his wife, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. That we are, illustratively speaking, the bride of the Lamb, the Lord, Jesus. And so Ruth is a type of picture of the bride. She's noticed by Boaz even before she's aware that he notices her and that he has an interest in her. And so we see this uh, scene being set in the first seven verses. Now we see the first interaction between them in verse eight. It says, then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground. That, that must have hurt, by the way. Uh, and said to him, why? just Bible language. It's funny sometimes, though, isn't it? He says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am A foreigner. We see here, first of all, that Boaz comes to Ruth and he gives to her, first of all, a place. He welcomes her within his field and he tells her, don't go out to any other field, but let your eyes be upon the field which they reap and go after it. I'm giving you a place, Ruth. Second of all, he gives her a promise. He says that there's a harvest for you. As long as you're close by me, there will always be enough for you to have. There's a harvest in your future. Number three, he gives her protection. He says, I've commanded the young men not to touch you. And then finally, provision. He says, when you thirst, there's water here that's been gathered for you. By the way, this is the best water in the land of Israel. Remember when King David was running from Saul and was coming towards the end of his time fleeing? And he uttered these words. He said, oh, what I wouldn't give for just a glass of the water from the well that's in Bethlehem. And a couple of his servants risked their lives to go and get it for him because, you know, they loved David so much. This water was good water. And so Boaz provides these things for Ruth right away. And notice Ruth's response. She's amazed. She says, why would you do this for me, seeing that I am a foreigner? Now, she was a foreigner, but that's putting it softly. She was a Moabite. Do you know who the Moabites were? Remember when Lot came out of Sodom? God spared him. The angel came in just before Sodom was destroyed. And Lot ended up fleeing into a mountain and, and hiding in a cave with his two daughters. And his two daughters, having been corrupted by the lifestyle in Sodom, they hatched a plan. They said, hey, let's get our dad drunk and we'll sleep with him. Me one night, you the next. And that way we don't go childless. That's what they did. And the two daughters of Lot conceived and their children became the descendants, or their descendants became the Moabites. And so they had a shady background. Now, they also became the enemies of the Israelites. There's a history there. All the way through their wilderness wanderings, throughout the time of of, of Joshua's ministry, the Moabites, even into the judges that we just finished studying, the, the Moabites were a persistent problem for the children of Israel. And they were cursed by God, and furthermore, they were disallowed to be assimilated into the congregation of the Lord. There were some foreigners that would be allowed after a certain time to come in, but not the Moabites. God said through Moses, he said not to the 10th generation, and that was a, a symbol of indefinite, that the Moabites were not allowed in. And so Ruth, knowing these things, having been warned by Naomi most definitely, sees the kindness of Boaz And she uh, is amazed by it. And she says, why would you take such notice of me seeing that I'm a foreigner? And so in verse 11, Boaz answers the question. He says, and Boaz answered and he said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you've left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before the Lord repay your work. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. I want you to notice what it is that Boaz sees in Ruth. She says, why have you taken this notice of me? His response is threefold. Number one is her apparent others centeredness. It's reported to me the kindness that you've shown to Naomi. My distant relative. He points out, second of all, the way that she handled hardship after the death of your husband, he says. And then finally, number three, her desire for the God of Israel. He says, and because you've come here and to seek refuge under the arm of the living and the true God, the God of Israel. Those were the things that attracted Boaz to Ruth. Interesting that it's not her attractiveness. It isn't what he sees in her outwardly. It isn't the adorning of the hair, the braiding of the hair, the apparel that she wears. But he's attracted to the inner beauty of the person of the heart. That's what he sees. This is a great lesson for married or or, or people seeking a spouse to understand. That the things that matter most in a person's life are not the things that are on the outside, but the things that are on the inside. What's in the heart? Are they self-centered or are they other-centered? How do they deal with hardship when it comes? And how is their relationship with God? In Boaz's mind, he sees these things in Ruth and he says, Man, this is the ingredients of a marriage that will be made to last. It's interesting. He prayed a prayer for her in verse 12. He said, The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel. God is going to use Boaz to answer his own prayer. And I find that, that God does that often that he'll often use us to answer the prayers that we pray. You know, we'll pray and we'll say, you know, Lord, there's a great need that your church has. Nobody's reaching this area of people. And we begin to pray, God, raise someone up. Do you know who God often raises up? You. <laughs> God, raise someone up to reach my child, to take him by the hand, to disciple them. Guess who God wants to raise up? You. He likes to use the person who prays. Why did he put it on your heart in the first place? A good question to ask god's going to use boaz to answer his own prayer now these are the values that ruth has and it's what boaz finds attractive now we assume that ruth was attractive you know he took notice of her back there in verse seven verses six and seven who is this you know he asked but maybe not you know she's probably between 30 and 40 years old at this point most scholars think closer to 40 she might be past the flower of her age so to speak But that's not necessarily what Boaz is looking for. Then we see the kindness of Boaz in verse 14. It says, Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. This is the Ruth diet. She ate until she was satisfied and then she left the rest. Pretty practical you know and when she rose up again verse 15 to glean boaz commanded his young men saying let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her if she wants to get in there and just take even from among the harvested wheat or barley it would be don't reproach her at all and also verse 16 let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her and leave it that she may glean And do not rebuke her. Again, I love the King James in verse 16. It says, and leave for her handfuls of purpose. It, It means the same thing, but the language implies much more. He says, leave for her handfuls of purpose. That's exactly what our Boaz does for us. He draws us. He notices us. He calls us close to himself, and then he shows us kindness. And then he leaves for us more in the field, handfuls of purpose. And so verse 17, it says she gleaned in the field until evening and she beat out what she had gleaned. She threshed it loosely and she found that it was about an ephah of barley. So about 35 pounds in a day. That's quite a, that's quite a good take for a day of gleaning. And so she took it up and she went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So she gives her mom the other half a sandwich that she had had at mealtime. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. He's related to us, and not only is he related to us, but she uses the word goel, one of our close relatives, meaning a potential redeemer. Now remember, I shared with you last time the law of redemption. That if a person fell on hard times and had to sell their land so that there wouldn't be land trusts amongst wealthy people, you always had the opportunity to redeem or buy back what you had to sell when you were in poverty. It had to be a member of the family. And here Naomi realizes, You ever feel that way? Do you know what that is? Do you know what that is? That is hope. It's hope. For the first time in a long time, Naomi sees a glimmer of light. Wait, could it be? Could it be? Could there be something? Could God? Blessed be he of the Lord. And so Ruth, verse 21, the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go not with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, which was several months later. And she dwelt then with her mother-in-law. Okay. So we see the scene and we see things beginning to take shape here. Now we're familiar with what's going on, but the question that I pose to you is what do we do with the wait? How do we conduct ourselves or live our lives during that season or stretch when we don't know how things are going to work out for us while we're waiting on the Lord? Now these things that we see in this text, these principles that the Holy Spirit lays before us, are true for every one of us, no matter what it is that God has for you, or no matter where you are in your season of waiting. You may be waiting on his plan for your life, just in general. What, what do you have for me, God? You may be waiting on Him for your career or for the direction that you 're to take in that regard. You may be waiting on the Lord for a spouse for marriage, like the characters in our story, both naomi or i 'm sorry Ruth and Boaz find themselves in that situation, or you might find yourself like Naomi sitting upon a pile of broken pieces of life, and you 're just wondering where do I go from here Now These things apply to every one of those, so what do we see? What would God say to us? To you, tonight, how to conduct yourself in that situation. Number one, and for your notes, is this. Be industrious. Don't sit around. Ruth was not one that was going to sit around and wait for life to come to her. She was going to do everything she could to go out and make something happen, even for herself. She wasn't going to use Naomi's Wi-Fi and sit around on Facebook And tweet, you know, and post things on Pinterest and wait for something to come up and network through LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff. She wasn't going to do that, but she was going to go out and do whatever she could, willing to work hard, low-paying work for the sake of just simply staying busy. Now, I meet, and I know you do too, a lot of people that are emotionally not doing good. Emotionally unstable. They have problems. They would classify themselves as, uh, you know, schizophrenic or bipolar. Some of them would say that they're OCD, you know, and and, and people have all these different things that, that they carry around with them and that they're constantly seeking to get through and get over. I find that there's a common denominator almost every time with all of those emotional problems, and that's this. Too much free time. Oftentimes, that's the case, is that there's just way too much time to sit and think and analyze and process how I'm feeling and how I'm doing and what's going on. And all of that just builds up and it it just becomes a tidal wave of emotional instability within someone's life. But I have found that when those same people just get busy, life begins to happen for them. They get a job. They get married. They have a couple of kids. They find themselves in a few stressful situations. Suddenly, string by string, all of those emotional bands are broken. And they kind of just forget about the situation and the things that were going on previously. I find that it's true. And it's a concept that we see with Ruth. She doesn't know what's going to happen now. But she's not going to sit around and just wait for it to come to her. She goes out and she does something about it. In Genesis chapter 3, the curse of man is highlighted for us there. Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit. You know the story. But God says this puzzling thing in chapter 3, verse 17. When he looked at Adam and he explained how the curse would work for him, he said this. He said, cursed is the ground for your sake. Now, you read that and and, you you just say, okay, yeah, I understand, cursed is the ground. But did you hear what God said? He said, cursed is the ground for your sake. In other words, he's saying not cursed is the ground for your sin. It's cursed is the ground for your sake. That is, Adam, because of what has happened to you, because of the condition that you're now in, sin entering into you and the death that comes through that sin, you're going to need to be busy. You're not going to be able to just hang around in the garden and dress and keep it anymore. You're going to have to sweat. There's going to have to be thorns. There's going to have to be stress. There's going to have to be problems. And you're going to find, Adam, that that's for your sake. You're going to find, in a sense, a sense of salvation. Not, you know, salvation from sin. But salvation from the corruption of sin presently. As you just give yourself to labor. It's for your sake. And I find that that's true. We're supposed to be busy. Idle hands and idle minds are still busy. The Devil's Workshop. So, industry. Also, to be industrious is a good breeding ground for the second thing that we see in Ruth's situation, and that is this. Number two is cultivate and maintain godly character. When you're in the season of waiting on the Lord, don't say, well, there's no reason for me to be godly. There's no reason for me to practice holy principles. I can just... Do nothing, or I can flesh out, or I can just sin, because God's not really doing anything in my life right now. Bad move, don't do that. We see the opposite taking place with with Naomi, with Ruth, and also with Boaz. Notice the humility that we see in Ruth. When she wants to go glean, she doesn't just say to her mother-in-law, I'm not going to sit around here and do nothing, I'm going gleaning. No, she politely asks, she says, may I please go out and glean and who, after him who, in whose side I may find favor. When she comes to the gleaners again, she says, the, 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 the head harvester reported that Ruth said, may I please glean after you. That she didn't just assume that it was her right and her entitlement, but that there was a humility there. When Boaz finally approached her and told her that She could drink the water and that she had a place and that she was protected. She didn't just say, yeah, thanks, I really deserve that and I really need it too because these guys, they got wandering eyes and they've been looking at me all day. She doesn't do that. She falls on her face in humility and she says, why would you take notice of me when I am nothing more than a foreigner, a Moabite, cursed and disallowed? We see that same humility in Boaz. We see that even though he was a man of wealth, that he was a man of power, that he had history in Bethlehem, Yet he didn't treat his workers that way. He treated them with honor, with respect. He prayed the blessing of the Lord upon their lives. When he dealt with Ruth, he dealt with her with gentleness and with, uh, with respect and love. You know, think about Boaz, this man. Who was his mother? His mother was Rahab. Remember that study in Joshua chapter 2? We looked at Rahab. I mean, she was a condemned, heathen, lying, prostitute, Canaanite woman. She had six strikes against her in acceptance amongst God's people. I mean, all six of those things rendered her disqualified. And yet, what did we find? We find that God welcomed her with open arms. That he didn't discriminate against her even because of her background or her lifestyle or the things that she did, but he welcomed her in when she would come by faith. He loved her. That was the upbringing that that changed woman then gave to Boaz And we see him then giving that then to this woman, Ruth, seeing her, hey, another foreigner, another outcast, another person perhaps with a shady background, another person who's seeking refuge amongst the people of God, even though she wasn't born into that privilege. And we find that he welcomed her in. Amazing, do you realize that Rahab and Ruth will both result or end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? That's an amazing thing to think about. That's the seed of the messianic family. And do you realize that at the very seed level of the messianic family, Jesus would only be 25% Jewish? Really? Because Rahab was Canaanite, okay? And Salmon was. Jewish. So you, there's the only Jewish tie. Now you have Boaz who being born is only 50% Jewish because Rahab was Canaanite and Salmon was Jewish and and Ruth who's 0% Jewish. So a mom who is 0% Jewish, a dad who's 50% Jewish, and that's who ultimately gave birth to the Messiah, Jesus. Still fulfilling the law that it would be the seed of Abraham, the line of David, but yet God's speaking from the very root that he planned to bring the Gentiles into this plan of salvation. But back to the point, humility. When you see yourself for what you are, and this is for you and for me, then you appreciate how good you've got it. I mean, what are we? What right do we have that God should be good to us at all? What right do we have to enjoy the blessings and the privileges and the life that we have? Very little. And when we recognize that, then we can truly appreciate it. We're condemned, heathen sinners, separated from God, sentenced to hell. But God had mercy on us and paid the price for us. And we deserve none of it. James chapter 4, verse 6, says that God humbles the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Boaz and Ruth are both pregnant with godly character. There's kindness, there's meekness, there's politeness, there's generosity, there's respect, there's submission and love. Here's the point, is that most people, when they find themselves in a situation where they think God has left them, they leave off godly character, and they just decide, well, if God is going to treat me the way that he has, then I'm just going to go and do what I want, and live the way that I want. Not so. Don't do that. It's a waste of time. Number three that we see here is maintain holiness. When you're in the season of waiting, what are you doing, Lord? How is this going to work out? Maintain holiness. Now, this applies to all, but especially those like Boaz and Ruth that are waiting on the Lord for a spouse. I think this is of utmost importance. In verse 8, what did Boaz say to Ruth? He said, stay by my young men, young women, not my young men, my young women. I've protected you from the young men. Stay away from the young men, you know. But here's the idea. What he's saying to her Is he saying, don't frolic around in other fields, spending time with the young men and drifting from what you've been given to do, but stay in the place of purity and keep yourself in a place where God can continue working in your life. And here's, here's what happens to compromise our purity as Christians, because we, you know, we don't understand God's plan. And so we're just going to go do what we want. It greatly hinders our progress in discovering God's plan for our lives. I wrote this sentence. I had been waiting all day to say it. Here it is. It puts his program on pause because his priority becomes to purify and not to perfect. (laughs) Can I say it again? (laughs) It puts his program on pause because his priority becomes to purify and not to perfect. Here's what happens. How many of you ever had a sliver or a broken toe? And then you try to live your life. What happens? No matter what you do, you can't get away from the fact that you have a sliver. Every time you try to use your hand, you go, ow, 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 oh, ow. Every time you try to walk, you have a broken toe. You're going, ooh, ooh, ooh. See, what happens is this. You compromise your purity, and now all of a sudden, God wants to be doing. He wants to be moving you closer. He wants to be moving you onward in your life and moving you things. But now he has to stop that for a while because he's got to repurify. There's a sliver that has to be dealt with, a toe that has to be healed. And we see Boaz here wisely putting protections on Ruth, saying, stay holy, stay holy. Don't compromise your holiness. We are called to be separate from this world. We're not to walk in worldly ways. Number four, what do we do while we're waiting? Is stay in God's word constantly. Now, for this one, we read between the lines just a little bit, but not really. We see this concept of gleaning keep coming up in this chapter. Twelve times that word appears in the text that uh, that, that Ruth is gleaning. Now, we understand the welfare aspect of this. But gleaning is a principle, an illustration employed in scripture to speak of our Bible reading or our Bible study. And, and, and here's how that works. The way we feed on God's word is that here. God has laid out before us an entire field of revealed truth here. here it is right here before us right now. In fact, right this second, we're walking through God's field of truth. And all week long, I've been harvesting I've been going through Ruth chapter 2, searching, gathering, stomping, organizing, putting ideas, thoughts here. Okay, this one here, this idea, this speaks of Jesus. Ooh, this one's practical and separating into bushels and going through. And now here we are, and what you're doing right now is you're gleaning. Because you're taking all that I've harvested for, for the past week, and you're grabbing as much of it as you can. And at the end of this Bible study, you're going to beat out. The, the words and, and the things that apply to you, the things that spoke to you, the things that God's using in your life, you're going to gather them up and you'll take them home. Hopefully you'll you'll take them into your life and maybe even share them with others, just like Ruth did the sandwich that she shared uh, there with Naomi. And that applies even in your personal Bible study. So you get up in the morning, you're reading your Bible, you're going through, you're gleaning, you're waiting for the <clears throat> the, the revealed truth to fall to the ground. So that you can grab it and take it and ingest it and make it yours receiving from God what he has for you for that day. But here's what happens. See, for them, it was grain, but for us, it's glory. God's giving us wisdom. He's giving understanding. He's giving us knowledge. He's laying down truth. He's building stability within our lives. And and, and as we're gleaning, God is causing us to grow. We're we're changing. We're going from what we were to what we are. Now, here's what happens when you do that. Is that our Boaz, Jesus, commands his harvesters, hey, leave them a little extra. Leave them a little extra. They're reading, they're taking it in, they're paying attention, so leave them some more. And so we're reading and we, oh man, Lord, I I, I never saw that before. I never understood this facet of your love. Lord, I never saw this picture before. I read this verse a thousand times, but never saw how it revealed you in that way or applied to my life so accurately. Thank you, Lord. And you're gleaning and God is teaching you to harvest the truth of his word. And so... What happens? Ruth gleans. She gathers little by little throughout the whole day. She walks home with 35 pounds. Little by little, one head at a time, it adds up. Same thing true with us. We read a little here, a little there. We go through the word of God. The word of God goes through us. We find ourselves growing. We find that God's wisdom, God's ways, God's principles. And here's what happens is that as God is preparing our place, And preparing us for that place, we see that his word is building us up and readying us for what we uh, will be and what we are to do. And so God's word steadily ingested by us is an essential part to us finding ourselves where we're supposed to ultimately be. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And as you continue in the word of God, gleaning day by day, adding more and more to what God is making you, it prepares you for what he has. Finally, number five, what to do with the weight is be patient. Don't jump in front of God. The verse is verse 23 at the very end of the chapter. It says, So she, Ruth, stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. The first harvest of the year would be the barley harvest. They would call it the winter harvest, and it would take place from the, in the months of March and April, which is their you know, late spring. Right there, right now, it's supposed to be blooming. This is like their time you know, over there. And so March, April would be the time of the barley harvest. The wheat harvest would be the latter harvest. It would come in June or July. And so here's what we see. We see that Ruth is waiting we see that Boaz is waiting. They're getting to know each other. There's, there's, a, um, there's a watching. There's a, a patience, you know, and all this kind of thing. But notice what it doesn't say. It's, well, what it does say. It says that she dwelt with her mother-in-law. She didn't say, well, I can see that God's putting this thing together. And me and Boaz are ultimately going to end up getting married. So I'll just sleep here. She doesn't do that. Every night she goes home, waiting and watching, seeing what God is going to ultimately do. Listen, you're waiting on the Lord, don't jump in front of him. Even if you can start to see maybe what he's going to do, don't say, okay, God, well, I got it from here. Just wait, be patient, and he'll ultimately bring it to pass. The best place to be in our walk with the Lord is not in front of him and not behind him, but to be right in step, right where he's got us uh, in his way. And so we see them handling this situation so well, what to do while they're waiting. But you ask the question, you say, okay, I I hear what you're saying, that's the way that we're supposed to live, but it doesn't answer my biggest question. My biggest question is this, why, why, why do we have to wait we're Americans. We don't wait for things. You know, we want 4G service. We want our food right now. We don't want there to be a line. You know, you better not have a problem at your register. You know, I mean, I was at Stop and Shop, you know, when you you know when you go to Stop and Shop and you can take the thing with you and scan your groceries while you go and bag them and at the end you, you could just check it in. You know, there was only one scan checkout working and the guy didn't scan any of his groceries. So someone was standing there having to scan each one of his groceries. And you know what I found myself? I was like, ur, 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 ur. That's not, you should be in the other line. Why are you in this line? You know, but my son was with me. So I had to look like this. <laughs> How you doing, Rog? Doing good. You know, inside, I'm going, "Ah, why? Because we want things now. I want it now, you know. So, why? Why does God make us wait? Well, what is God doing while we're waiting? Why the wait? Because, yeah, we have a character. There's something that we're to do, but why does He make us do it? Here's why because God's doing a couple things. First of all, He's working providentially, He's setting things up behind the scenes. Things that we can't see, that we can't understand, that we don't know about, that would never make sense to us in a thousand years. He's put in it all together. Think about it. Think about the timing of Ruth and Naomi's return to Bethlehem. It says it happened. Oh, it happened right at the beginning of the barley harvest, right when everyone was going out into the field. Oh, a few verses later, it says it happened that Ruth stumbled onto the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Boaz. That of all the places she could have gone, of all the farms and farmers in an agrarian society, she just happened to come into the field of Boaz. God's working. He's behind that somewhere. How about the fact of who Boaz was? The fact that he was the son of Rahab the harlot. God is working in all of these things. And notice this, or take note of this for yourself, is that this is the primary way that God works within our lives. It's through this thing we call providence. It's God working behind the scenes. He's setting things up. He's working things out. He's making it so that when the time comes, that purpose is to join with our lives, we're ready for it. That he set it all up and so that we have to give him space to do that. He's also working preparationally. He's using our experiences and and allowing us to apply the things that we're learning along the way so that we grow and that we're ready for what it is that God has for our lives. I've said this before. It's one of my favorite concepts that God lays out for us in Scripture, and that's this. Is that the pain we experience while God is preparing us for what is to come, it hurts. But it doesn't hurt as bad as getting to the place that God has for you and not being adequately prepared for it. That hurts much worse. And God's not going to let that happen. And so it takes time for the things that we need to be cultivated within our soul so that we're ready. So he's working in us preparationally. And then finally, number three, he's working, he's wooing us intimately. Notice that Ruth doesn't learn everything about Boaz all at once. Little by little, he reveals to her things concerning himself. First, it's just, you know, hey, he owns this field. Then she finds out later, wow, this guy's pretty well-to-do. He's got a lot of servants and people really respect him. Then she finds out, hey, this guy's interested in my well-being and he has a desire for me for all the right reasons. Later on, she's going to learn, hey, this guy is able to save me, to redeem me, and he's actually willing to do it. And little by little, she's discovering more about who this guy is. It's the same way the Lord deals with us. While we're in the season of waiting, preparation, as God is providentially moving things around, he's also revealing himself to us. He's teaching us who he is. He's causing us to fall more and more in love with him as we discover that he is even bigger and better than we ever thought he could be. I got good news for you. Do you know that that discovery process is never going to end? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says it like this. Paul wrote and he said that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Then in the ages that are yet to come, we're still going to be discovering facets of his glory, his kindness, his person, and his love. But it begins now. He takes us by the hand. He leads us closer and closer to himself. What's the point of all this? The point is this, is that he's working while we're waiting. His promise is perfect, but we have a part to play. If Naomi had never gone to Moab, there never would have been a Ruth. If there wasn't a Ruth in Israel, then Boaz and Ruth never would have been married. If Boaz and Ruth hadn't been married, there never would have been an Obed, or a Jesse, or a David, or a Jesus, that came through the line of those according to the perfect plan of God. What's the point? The point is this. That he is able to work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to to his purpose. It's not a promise that's too hard for him. He's able to do it. I brought this with me. My daughter, Hosanna, has been doing these lately. This is not one that she did, um, but this is a cross-stitch. Can everybody see that okay? Can you tell what it is? That's because it's really messy. You see that? I mean, it is all over the place. There are lines going every different direction. There's absolutely no order to it at all, except for the border, which kind of says that there should be some order, but there really isn't. You know why you don't see the order? Because you're looking at the wrong side. If you look at the other side of it, oh, okay, hearts, words, there's flowers, there's decorations, you see, it all makes sense. It's the same thing that God's doing in our lives. Do you understand? Our lives are a cross stitch, get it? He's doing things. He's knitting things together. And all we see is this side. And we go, God, it doesn't make sense. Why are you putting that string there? It doesn't go there. You're screwing up the whole picture. Everything's supposed to be nice. It's working out so good for everyone else. Why is it so hard for me? And God says, from my side, everything's perfect. I'm working it out. I'm working in your life. You worry about your character. I'll worry about your reputation and your destination, where you're going to end up. So God gives us this picture, this story, this promise. He says all things are working together for good. Our side, it seems like a mess. It makes no sense. But his side, it's perfectly put together. He's working in your life. Wait on him. Trust him. Believe him. His promise holds true. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful even to the end. That you will never leave us or forsake us. That you're with us always, even to the end of the age. You promise to keep us, Lord. And you promise that along the way, you're working all things together for our good. And Lord, tonight represented in this room, there is a collective set of problematic circumstances that would burden all of us. And Lord, that you're able to take every one of those things and weave them into a tapestry of glory for each one of us is too much for us to comprehend. And so we thank you tonight, Lord, for who you are, for what you do, for the promise that you give. We ask that you fill us with hope. We ask that you'd restore our joy. We pray that you would change us, Lord, where perhaps we've checked out or we've given up. We ask that you lead us again. Like Naomi had that glimmer of hope when she heard the name Boaz pray that when we hear the name Jesus, our hearts would lift the same way, that though everything be stacked against us, you say, God is for us, and so we just ask you tonight, Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit, send us forth with this truth, we thank you for this time, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, Amen. let's all stand together.